Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So please follow her out the back door if you want to go and uh, participate in that time. You'll get to be a kid a little bit. So enjoy that if you'd like. Miss Molly's heading out the back door. Back that way. And she's going to the youth room. Hi, everyone. Hi, hi guys. I always appreciate the call and response. That's just like a normal thing as a teacher. And um, anyways, my name is Keith. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, I do. I am in charge of the youth ministry here called Unshaken Youth. And right now we're doing a fundraiser that is uh, something that we're really excited about because we finally get to go on Centrifuge. So for those of you who don't know, Centrifuge is a trip similar to our Mfuge trip, which was our mission trip. But this time, instead of focusing on helping out the community, we're really helping on growing ourselves in our relationship with Christ. And we're doing that with different groups of activities that they can take part in. So the students who are going might have the option to do something a little bit more adventurous, like camping or kayaking or hiking or anything like that. Or they might have the chance to sit through some classes on evangelism or take classes on music. There's a guitar class for anyone who's interested in learning to play the guitar to lead worship. In order to do this, the trip that we're hosting is $350 per the students who are going. And because of everything happening with COVID, we haven't been able to do our normal amount of fundraising to, in order to do so. So we're going to start doing that right now. And so as you walk in, there are two boards in the back. There will be a third next week. I just totally forgot about it, so wasn't able to put it up. That's on me. Um, there are two boards back there, and they are donation boards, which basically means there are envelopes listing anywhere from $5 to $350, which is the total cost of the trip per, for a student. And we're asking you if you have the chance, if you have um, some extra cash, if anything like that, if you'd be willing to donate to the youth mission trip. And the money goes 100% to any student who's interested in going to cut down their cost. So instead of charging them the full amount, we'll take it off the amount that they owe. Um, basically, there's an envelope back there. You take the envelope that you want to give. You can put in, there's like a little piece of paper in there that's like, for you know, what's your name so we can thank you for it and anything like that. And you just fill that out and put it either in the offering plate or you can give it to me um, and I'll be able to make sure that that gets to where it needs to go. So thank you in advance. We really appreciate everything you guys have done in the past couple years and, and this year has just been tough. So I'm really excited that we actually get to go somewhere and get to leave Pennsylvania. And we're going to North Carolina and this place is called Ridgecrest and frankly, it's beautiful. If you get the chance to look it up, it's like gorgeous. Mountains, um, I, I don't trees. I don't know why trees came to mind, but there's a lot of trees. So, um, but yeah, so thank you everyone for that. Mountains and trees. Thanks. That's, that was descriptive. Um, it's okay. Yes. And we're glad you didn't use all thousand. Um, 
Anyway, a couple other quick announcements. I, I do encourage you to support our student ministry. They're doing a great job. If you were here this last Thursday, just drove by. They're all out hanging out on the playground, doing crazy games and learning God's word. And so uh, we've got a great set of leaders in our student ministry, older students. We've got great leaders in our children's ministry. We just have so many people who are serving and loving. So thank you, everybody, for what you do and how you support. A couple other quick announcements. Monday night Bible study will be taking place. So uh, Steve said bring dinner. Uh, that's, that's uh, no, actually, you're not bringing anything, but uh, instead of a cookout, come to Bible study tomorrow night here at the church, 7 to 9 p.m., continuing 2 Thessalonians, and then, of course, uh, ladies' ministry uh, will be on Wednesday night at 6.30, and then student ministry Thursday night at 6.30, so uh, lots of opportunities this week to get into the Bible and grow together to know God and make Him known, including Friday night, we'll have our uh, next 1829 meeting. And that'll be here at the church, so everybody in that 18 and 29, 1829 group uh, will get, uh, get a text later to tell you what we're going to be doing food or, you know, hangout-wise. But uh, I encourage you to, to uh, invite a friend, come and join us. Remember and, and know and remember how we've had just this freedom to ask nearly anything, and sometimes we talk about it too. So uh, we'll just, it's a good time together. I encourage everybody 18 to 29 to come and join us. And then men's breakfast is Saturday morning at 8 a.m. This coming Saturday morning, first Saturday in June at 8 a.m. So all the men in the church, you're welcome to come and join us. Breakfast is provided. All you have to do is show up and be ready to eat and share in God's word together. So it's a good time. Uh, we are continuing and, and slowly but surely getting closer to the end of the gospel of Mark. And it reminds us as, as we continue to engage with the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is the Christ, this promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the Son of God. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and begin to open them up to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21 today. Uh, or you can, of course, open your Bible app, and hopefully the notes are in there if I did everything right this week. Last week, as we looked at the first little part of chapter 14, we ended with the question is, who are you? Are you Mary or are you Judas? And the question really was, was centered around the idea of Mary who gave uh, just this beautiful, extravagant gift in honor of her love for Jesus and who he was and is and, and all that, that he uh, meant to her. Uh, and, and she gave this, this gift that was worth uh, what would be twenty-five dollars to $30,000 today and, and just, just poured it out on Jesus' head and on his feet, this beautiful, fragrant, spikenard that was likely a, a family heirloom. And, and she, she gave so freely and worshiped so extravagantly. And then there was Judas, who was skimming money off the top, who sold Jesus out to the culture around him for 30 pieces of silver, uh, about a, a month's worth of salary. And, and so we have these two different people, very, very distinct approaches to Jesus. One that was, I'm following him because He's amazing, he's God, and I love him. And then the other, I'm following him for what I can get out of him. And so are you Mary or are you Judas in your relationship with Jesus and how you approach him? So by the time we get to chapter 14, verses 12 through 21, we're one more day, actually almost two full days at, by this point, closer to Jesus' crucifixion. And there begins to be some, some stuff going on, some more interactions that are really meaningful and help us to understand more about our Savior and what he's done for us and who this Christ, 
the Son of the Living God really is. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21. So please read along with me. Uh, well, you know, you silent and I'll read out loud. Because um, that would have just been awkward if everybody started talking. Uh, like we're in a Pentecostal church or something. Um, some of you got a joke and some of you are like, why did he say that? Uh, so starting in verse 12, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So many of us are familiar with this last evening of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion. This last supper, it's called. And, and so this, this moment, this, this time together with his disciples is is really pretty intimate. In other Gospels, like the Gospel of John, we're told that they shared the meal together. Jesus um, washed all of the disciples' feet in an act of service and love and devotion toward them, and then encouraged them to do, serve each other in the same way. The Gospel of John also details for us how this night includes some of Jesus' most profound and deep teachings on the Holy Spirit, the unity of the Son and the Father, the unity of the church, within the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. And so uh, we, we see that this is an important night, and it's going to unfold with some interesting things. And Mark highlights a couple of very specific things for us. And so starting in verse 12, it tells us that it's on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So if you remember, we talked last week uh, when we started chapter 14 that we're told that it was the beginning of this season of unleavened bread and Passover, two different feasts in the Old Testament established in the book of Exodus. One unleavened bread was a seven-day feast in which the Jewish people ate nothing but unleavened bread, not nothing but, but ate no bread but unleavened bread, and it reminded them of the haste with which they left Egypt they didn't even have time for their bread to rise, and so it was unleavened, and they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days. And then there's, of course, the Passover, which is a single night, a single meal, and it's a remembrance of God sending the angel of death over Egypt, yet preserving his people because they had slaughtered a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts. And the angel of death passed over their homes, and their firstborns were saved. So two different celebrations, two different experiences 
And by the time of Jesus, they've been combined into one seven-day feast that begins with Passover and continues with unleavened bread, that seven days of unleavened bread. So here's what's happening is it's time for this Passover meal, this single celebration meal, and a couple of Jesus' disciples say to him, where are we going to eat? Where are we going to do this meal? Now, if you remember, the week before Jesus' crucifixion, he's been spending most of his nights, if not all of them, out in Bethany, where the, the uh, feast or the, the meal with Simon the leper and Mary took place, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. But in order to celebrate the Passover meal, everyone wanted to be within the city walls. It was traditional to be within Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So Jesus' disciples are looking at him and expecting, we need to find a place inside Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's like, you know, trying to get into Chuck E. Cheese for a birthday party, right? You've got to know where you're going. You've got to have it set up. This isn't something you just do by the seat of your pants. This is a big deal. And so Passover is going to happen, and Jesus' disciples are saying, we need to find a place. We need to get this going and prepare for this meal that's coming tonight. And so uh, Jesus sends two disciples and he tells them that he wants them to go into Jerusalem and he wants them to find a man carrying a jar of water. Now, kind of, you'll see some of the stuff we're going to highlight because it's going to be in bold. What's interesting about a man carrying a jar of water is that men did not carry jars of water. Uh, traditionally, men would maybe carry a... Um, a skin of water uh, a, a, and, and carry it kind of portable, you know, like a flask kind of thing. But it was a woman's job to go to the well to get the pots of water, or a jar of water, and carry it back to the household. And so Jesus is telling them there's going to be a man doing an unusual thing. So I want you to look for him. And when you find him, I want you to follow him. And then the house that he goes into, I want you to talk to the owner and tell them that the teacher is ready for his guest room so he can have Passover with his disciples. Now, there are some discussions amongst commentators and Christians. Some like to read this story and go, see, Jesus, he just knew things. And he knew there would be a guy carrying a jar of water. And he knew that there would be a place for them to have Passover together. Uh, because we see that this unfolds just like Jesus says, uh, that there's going to be a, a, a large upper room furnished and ready, prepared for them, and that they were to prepare for Passover there. And the disciples, they set out and they went to the city and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover meal. Now some say, see, it's a supernatural proof that Jesus was the Son of God. Well, or it could just be that Jesus was a really good planner. Uh, and, and, and that's just as reasonable an explanation here. So if you look at this and go, see, he knew everything. Maybe. It doesn't tell us that this was foreknowledge or a prophecy. What it, what it can very well show us, though, is that Jesus was prepared. He knew what was coming. He knew what was ahead. He wasn't just walking around, you know, smiling and touching people and, God bless you. God bless you, and God bless you, and I love everybody. No, he knew exactly what he was here for, and he knew exactly what his mission was, and he knew that this meal 
was part of that, and he had set the stage. Why would Jesus set it up kind of this covert, man with a jar, secret home, you won't know until you get there? Well, if you remember, we see earlier in the chapter, at the beginning of chapter 14, the religious leaders are looking to do what to Jesus? They're looking to kill him. And they don't want to arrest him in the public square. They want to find a private, secret space to, to kind of arrest him and take him away so that there won't be any reaction by the crowds. So wouldn't it make sense that Jesus is behaving a little bit on the covert side? You know, a little bit of Mission Impossible music kind of going on as he's preparing for the Passover because he knows he needs to be in the city and he needs to be prepared, but he also wants to hide from the religious leaders at this point to keep his whereabouts secret because it's not yet time for them to know where he is. It's not yet time for them to come and arrest him, though that time will, of course, come. So everything happens just as Jesus said it would. And there's this great big upper room, and it's prepared, it's furnished for them They're pre to prepare the meal. And the Passover meal would have uh, been a, a roasted lamb. It would have been herbs and, and fruit. It would have been wine and unleavened bread. It, it, it's a pretty simple meal, honestly, but it was very profound and very meaningful. It had very specific elements, and everybody would have been purchasing those things and preparing for this Passover meal that night. And so everything is set in place for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate Passover. Now, interesting facts, uh, the author of the Gospel of Mark, or the compiler of the Gospel of Mark, uh, who, you know, took Peter's recollections and wrote them down for us. It's believed that this upper room likely belonged to his family. So it, it was his father who was the master of the house. And we're going to see Mark again. Actually, we'll see him mentioned by description a little bit later in the last night of Jesus' life before crucifixion. But not this week. So this was likely Mark's family dwelling. And when it became evening, Jesus and all of the 12 disciples came. Now, this is kind of a hard reading. We don't know if Jesus sent two of the 12 and they prepared or if Jesus sent others of his disciples. Because, you know, he had a, quite a crowd and, uh, to, to go and prepare the place. And then Jesus finally came with the 12 when it was evening time. But it, it was not unusual. In fact, it was proper for the Passover meal to begin after sunset, and it needed to be finished by midnight. So they had six hours or so to finish the Passover meal. That's a great meal. A meal that lasts six hours, you know, that's the kind you like, where you get to just relax and you get to eat. And, and this is what the Passover meal is. It's, it's, it's not some hurried, ritualistic, rushed, let's eat and get out of here kind of buffet. Instead, it is a, a long interaction with the elements, with the things that they're eating in order to remember and celebrate and understand what God had done for the Jewish people in the Exodus. And so they would recline at the table. They would literally lay down. And I, I, they were laying down at the table last week, too. And I told you, you know, it's kind of one of these things, but I'm not doing it for real because I don't know that I can get up without rolling off the stage. 
So they would be reclining at the table. So here's kind of a, this is a, a relief, a, a picture of um, kind of how this would happen. They, they would literally be laying kind of, well, like this, like, like uh, cars parked in a parking lot at an angle. Um, and, and so you would have one head and, and the next gentleman's head would be right next to the first gentleman's chest as you kind of lined up along the table. And so this was not a, a distant, formal kind of thing. This was a very intimate experience. You're laying beside other people and eating together. And, and, and you know, we have a picture in the Gospel of John of, of John himself laying his head over on Jesus' chest and asking who it was that betrays him. And it's because they literally were laying right next to each other as they shared this meal together. So they are reclining at the table, and as they're sharing this, this remembrance meal, as they're celebrating who they are as Jews and what God has done in their life, and, and, and spending this time together, Jew, Jesus goes ahead and says to them, Truly, or verily, or amen, amen. It, it's a, an affirmation that this will happen no matter what. This is going to take place. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. So Jesus, in this, this, this dinner of celebration, in this time of, of rejoicing together, where everybody's just happy to be together, happy to be celebrating what God has already done in their lives and their history, he, he kind of crashes the party and says, one of you is going to sell me out. One of you is going to turn me over to the authorities. And in fact, it's one of you who is right here eating alongside me. Someone who's sharing one of the most intimate moments of life together with me. You are the one who will betray me. And so we, we see this is a, a, a reminiscent or a, a recollection of Psalm 149 when David cries out uh, and, and laments how he has been betrayed by one of his close friends, Ahithophel, who was a, a close friend of his, but who actually supported David's son Absalom when he overthrew his father as king for a while. And so Jesus is actually talking about uh, or, or re referring to what is a, a messianic prophecy in Psalm 149 of how someone that he eats with will betray him. And eating together in this culture, this isn't just like, hey, let's have a burger and then, you know, we'll never talk to each other again. This is to eat with someone is, is one of the most intimate acts you can do that's not related to marriage. Uh, it, it is supposed to be that close of a connection. When you share a meal with someone, it, it is to pull down all your defenses. It is to trust them emphatically. To share a meal together is the ultimate act of togetherness. And, and yet, here is someone who has pretended for a long time to be Jesus' friend. Pretended for a long time to be close to him. And the sole consequence or, or thing that this man is working to is to betray Jesus. And, and Jesus feels this and it hurts. And, and then he goes on to say this in verse 21. You know what? I think I missed a couple slides. That's terrible. That's why Psalm 41.9 wasn't on there. I missed a couple of slides. Um, let's look at the picture of them eating. 
at leaning together, lying together. And here's what happens. Verses 19 and 20. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Now what's interesting is even Judas, what we're told, even Judas plays this game. Oh Jesus, is it me? Knowing all along he's already betrayed Jesus to the religious authorities. One after the other, they, they ask, who is it? And Jesus says to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Another act of intimacy, to share the same dish, to dip bread together, to eat from the same container. Uh, many of us have kids, and we know that there's, there's a certain age from like sit, being able to sit at the table till about four or five where you don't eat after them. It doesn't matter how much you love them, you don't want that in your mouth, you know, because you just, and that's, that's to share food together, to eat from the same dish, this is an intimate thing, and, and even when you love your kids, there's no way you're finishing that, right, because they're too young, it's half digested, sitting there on a t plate, Here, here's Jesus sharing this, this, this plate of food with Judas, the one who will betray him. How painful this must have been, how, how difficult this must have been for Jesus, that, that he knows what is to come, and yet one of the men he has invested years of life into and discipled and loved is going to be the one who will betray him. And so we, we get finally to verse 21, and it says, Jesus says this, and this is, this is just a, a really powerful statement, so we're going to really spend the rest of our morning on this one verse and its ramifications for us. Jesus says this, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus, as he laments and his disciples lament the fact that he will, betrayed, will be betrayed, uh, as Jesus is, is looking forward to what's going to happen the rest of this night and the next morning, his trials, his scourging, his, his crucifixion, as Jesus is looking forward to all of this, he makes this statement that's just profound in that it gives us a clear vision of first how Jesus sees what's going on, but also how the Son of God sees all of our lives. So it says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Where were the things that Jesus is talking about that, that are written of him? Where did those exist? Well, we have some very specific places where we see things that are written of Jesus. There are Old Testament prophecies, and it depends on who's counting and how, like, uh, symbolic you get. But there are anywhere from 200 to 400 prophecies regarding Jesus and the, the, the Messiah in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there are very specific things written about what would unfold in the life of the Messiah that was to come. And um, 191 of those have a direct personal reference. In other words, it says, this man will do this. And we see that, that all of these things written in the Old Testament, Jesus has fulfilled them all. 
all of the things that he needed to do, all of the things that were written of him in his first coming have been fulfilled. And so when he says that um, the things that are written of me are going to, for me, the things are going to go as they're written, he's talking about those Old Testament prophecies. But there's also this, this idea in Scripture that God has already written our lives. Psalm 139, verse 16 says this of us, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And when as yet there were none of them. There was none of them? This was copied and pasted, but that doesn't feel right. Um, and when as yet there were none of them. Here's the deal. Scripture tells us that God has already written out the days of our lives. That all of our experiences are ordained. Are ordained. Please forgive me. Today, my tongue does not want to behave, and I don't know why. I had enough coffee. Um, but, but we have this picture first in the Old Testament of writing about Jesus, but also that these are the things that God has ordained for the Son to unfold according to what needs to happen to accomplish the plans of God. And we see it reflected in, in the life of David here, and we see it in our own lives too. What God is telling us is that he has a plan and a purpose in every day written out for each and every one of us. And some of us find that like really comforting. And others of us go, what? I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. And because we get to this place in, in reading this that, that the things that are written of Jesus are going to happen is what he says. And he's implying the things that are written for all of us, they're going to unfold as God has ordained. But then he says, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never, or if he had not been born. So we, we see this picture of God has a plan, and it will happen. And then man had a choice, and he'll be held accountable for it. Jesus says there's a plan unfolding here tonight, and it's always been ordained by God, and it was always going to happen this way. But there is someone here whose choice to betray me will be judged harshly. And it's easy for us as modern Christians, and as we have time to think, you know, when, when we were all busy doing things like farming and just staying alive, we didn't think quite so much, but nowadays when we get to sit on our rear ends and read and watch Netflix and ponder the meaning of life, we think a lot more. And we come to a point where a lot of times we feel like there's this conflict in Scripture. When Jesus says something like this, that there is a plan, and yet there is a man whose choices will be held against him. That's part of that plan. We kind of go, well, wait a minute, which is it? Is, is it that God has a plan? Or that mankind's choices matter? Which is it, God? Because when we start to ponder it, sometimes it starts to feel a little unfair, doesn't it? If God has a plan and everything unfolds according to his ordained plan, then how can he hold anyone accountable ever? We're just doing what he told us to do. It's, it's not even a, the devil made me do it. It's, God wanted me to do it. Now, we want to be really careful and never attribute evil or wrong or sinfulness to God because Scripture tells us very clearly that 
he cannot sin, that he will not perpetrate evil. But when we start to talk about the plan of God, we want to try and understand what we mean by God's plan. Millard Erickson, he's a theologian, he writes this in talking about the plans of God or the sovereignty of God. We may define the plan of God as his eternal decision rendering certain all things that will come to pass. In other words, God literally has determined all things that will come to pass. And it's not a maybe, and it's not a sort of, but it's a certainty. How can God know all things if he does not know what will happen? He's not watching our lives and trying to, to, to catch up. Oh no, I had no idea he'd eat a bagel this morning. What am I going to do? God is, is not scrambling to make up for your choices. He's not wondering why there's evil in the world. He, he understands and he has in fact laid out this plan and sometimes we go, well, why would you plan it like this? Which is why we get verses that tell us that his ways are not like our ways. His plans, they're not like our plans. It helps us to understand that his goals are not the same as our goals in any given moment. But instead, God is in charge. Just, just like Psalm 139 says that each and every one of us, he was intimately involved in forming us together in our mother's womb. And every day... That his plan for us has already been written out before any of them came to pass. God knew each and every day of our life and how it would unfold. And it's actually part of his plan. Because a, a God who knows and is powerful and is omniscient and om, omnipresent, a God who already knows what's going to happen, if he wants something different to happen, it would. When it's ordained, when it's laid out, he is saying, this is my will for you. This is the plan for life. And I get it, this feels kind of harsh, and we're going to get there, though, eventually. Even the random things of life, so, uh, Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap. In other words, in, in, to try and determine what's right or what's wrong, there used to be a practice and, of, of casting lots. You know, God, if you, if you want me to do this, let the white side of the die come up. And boom. Okay, well, feels a little bit like chance, doesn't it? But it says every decision that feels like it was maybe just chance, it actually comes from the hand of God. Every circumstance in our life that feels like it's out of control, that, that it's, it's not right even, we... We question things. We, we, we need to understand. Scripture tells us that this is part of God's unfolding plan for us. Proverbs 19.21 says this. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We look and we go, I would like life to be this way. This is what would be good for me. God, you should probably do it that way. And God helps us to know and understand. Maybe those are nice things, but it his, it's his plan. It's his purpose that will stand. It's his plan and his purpose that will come to pass because he has ordained it. And he will make it so. A whole bunch of scripture right here. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 24 through 27 
The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And he goes on to talk about specifically what's going to happen to the Assyrians who were holding Jerusalem captive. And, and he then reiterates the fact that this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? In other words, God's plans always come to pass. And everything that happens is part of God's plan and purpose. Now, once again, we can fall off an edge and we can say something about, well, how could God allow that to happen in my life? Or how could he make that happen? And we have to say, I'm not sure. I don't understand. When we look at Jesus himself, do do you remember We haven't gotten there yet, but many of you have already heard the story unfold. What happens from here on in the life of Christ? What what happens is he is arrested and betrayed by someone he loves. He is beaten. He is flogged, which is another joyous experience, right? Flesh-rending, blood-spilling He is crucified. That is not a good Friday, is it? That's not what any of us would put on our calendar. And yet, Jesus here in Scripture over and over again tells us this was always God's plan. This was how it would unfold. This is what was going to happen. Jesus himself said in the Garden of Gethsemane three different times, God, Father, if there's any other way to do this, I know what's coming. If there's any other way to do this, can we do it that way? Father, if there's any other way to do this, can we do it that way? Father, if there is any other way to accomplish your plans, I would really love to see the other way. But each time he ended with, Not my will, but your will be done. Some of the greatest pain and suffering imaginable. According to the plans of God, resulted in your salvation and mine when we trust on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Who are we to say that our suffering is irredeemable? Who are we to say that that God's plans aren't good enough for us when we look at what he himself paid and did in order to redeem us? His plans are certain. Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God says his plan isn't so that our lives will be sunshine, happy, uh, butterfly, lollipop kind of places. But he says he does what he does. He plans what he plans for his own sake, for his own glory. Now, 
the, the, the individualist in us, right? The, 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 the justice in our own heart. We go, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. How come it's for your glory? Because he's worth all the glory. He is beyond value. You're talking about the infinite, immeasurable, all-powerful, all-knowing God of creation. He's worth all of it. And so when he says, I'm doing it for my sake, we should say, amen, Lord. You deserve it. Remember Mary and Judas? It is someone who pours out that which is of greatest value in loving worship to God. Or someone instead who is looking to satisfy their own needs and their own desires, like Judas. When we understand this truth, we can pour out all that we are in what seems like a wasteful manner in worship to God, understanding it is all for His glory. It is all so that he might be exalted. Acts 2, 23 says this, uh, says this, this Jesus delivered up accidentally as God tried to make amends and catch up and actually try and do something good out of what happened to Jesus. No, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The suffering of the Son was always the plan, and so we should not be surprised that when God's plan comes to pass, it at times includes suffering for us. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but then Peter says this to the crowd. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was always God's plan that Jesus die this way. But you're responsible for the choice that you made of rejecting him as Messiah and crucifying him. We get to this point where no longer is it God's in control and everything just happens. And it's not, hey, we get free will and we, you know, our choices are, are our choices and we can thumb our noise at God anytime. But it is a both and circumstance is what scripture teaches us. God is absolutely in control and our choices absolutely matter. Because we will be held accountable for those things and those ways in which we have rebelled against God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Even our salvation, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, has been established before time even started. God planned for us to be saved. And not just be saved, but also that we should be holy and blameless before him. Ephesians 1 goes on to say, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, God had a plan. It was to redeem us. He has chosen. He has called us out. He has always known us. 
And everyone who calls on Jesus' name, it's not because it was an accident or you finally understood. It was because God had always planned to bring you into his family. You were on his mind from before creation even happened. Here's some stuff we need to understand about God's plan. It's timeless and eternal. In other words, God has always had this plan for us and this creation and this world, and it's always been laid out. In fact, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God wasn't like, what am I going to do now? He knew. He planned. He ordained and established. Why would he do that? Why would he allow things like that to happen? Why would that be part of what happens? I don't know. Other than to say somehow it is to his glory. And guess what? For those of us who have the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's for our good as well. God's plan is not based on the works of man. We have this misconception sometimes that God looks down through creation and says, you know what? I think John may be a good guy. And if I say nice things to him and do good stuff for him, he might choose me. So because he's going to be a good guy, I'm going to choose him. Nah. Scripture tells us God chose us before we ever did anything. Or, and not, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan and his purpose. God's plan, it's all-inclusive and unchanging. Think about what you had for breakfast this morning. Was that God's plan? Yes. What? God is that intimately involved? I think so. Can you violate God's plan by choosing the wrong flavor bagel? No. It was always his plan. Now, was it actually your choice? It was. You chose, didn't you? We'll talk about how that works here in just a second. God's plan is certain to be accomplished so that when God says something will be, it will be. And God's plan is always established for his glory. Here's how Millard Erickson goes on to describe God's plan and man's choice. We may define the plan of God as his eternal decision rendering certain all things that will come to pass. The plan of God does not force humans to act in particular ways, but renders it certain that they will freely act in those ways. This is a challenging concept, I know. To, to, to think that God has established everything in your life to bring you to a decision, and those things make it to where you will always make that decision. Why? Because it was his plan. You, you realize when he controls everything, like he knit you together in your mother's womb, what's your favorite color? It's because God made you that way. So when it comes time to choose which Kool-Aid you're going to have based on the color, God knew which Kool-Aid you would choose. He knit you together to love that color, to love that flavor. Now when we talk about sin, we all struggle with these predispositions. Did God make me do it? No, God did not make you do it, but God knew you would. And it's actually part of God's greater unfolding plan to his glory and our Christ-likeness. Why would that happen? Why would that person hurt me like that? I don't know, but it's part of God's plan. 
It was their free choice, but it's part of God's plan to grow you up into Christ-likeness and to glorify Him. Is this difficult to wrestle with? Yes, it is. It is much easier to be one of two people who stands over here and says, well, God chooses everything and it's all His plan and there's nothing I can do and He can't hold me responsible. I'm just a robot. Mm -mm, Yes, Lord. That's comforting. It's even more comforting for some of us to be over here and say, God is just playing catch-up all the time and free will. I get to choose everything. I I can blame it all on somebody else. I can blame it all on myself. It's free will, free will, free will. When scripture teaches us it's somewhere in the middle where both are true and we have to try and reconcile them. And it's difficult. And it makes us be believers who are in constant tension. Is that God's will or my choice? Yes. Well, could it have been differently? No. And some of that, we look at our pains and go, I wish it could have been different. Yeah, me too. We look at our mistakes and go, if only I had known. Well, you didn't, and it's done. (laughs) Right? We we look at things and and we go, "I, I, I wish it could just, it could have worked out differently. Could I have chosen differently? No. Because you're exactly who God wants you to be today, according to his plan for you and for those around you. Now, that doesn't mean that we just give up and we just say no more choices because scripture clearly teaches us that our choices, they're genuine. Like when you chose the bagel, what flavor bagel you ate this morning, that was genuinely your choice. Did God ordain it? Yes. He laid out all the circumstances and knew that that would be your choice. But it was your choice. It was your genuine choice. It was your choice. It was you. You chose what flavor bagel or muffin to eat or not eat this morning. And because our choices are genuine, and because our choices are our own, we will be held to account by God for our choices. Now, Paul, the apostle, he knew that people would feel like it was this this wrestling, this fight between God's plan and man's choices. And in Romans chapter 9, he says this, In verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, as you hear this, as you think about God's plan and your choices, wouldn't you agree with Paul here? And say, how is it that God can can have the nerve to hold us responsible if it's his plan and he shaped us like this? How can he hold my choices against me when they were always part of what he had planned? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, Paul's kind of imagining, what if this is God's way? What if this is his plan? What if this is why he's doing what he's doing? He doesn't say this is why he's doing what he's doing necessarily. 
but it does help us to begin to understand. Listen, this is beyond our understanding why God does what he does. It's, it's beyond our, our ability to, to comprehend his plan, to see long term how it's going to work out. You, if you guys remember the illustration, it's been a while, but I had a big long rope. And if a rope is eternity and the plan of God, you and I, we, we have one little tiny section of that rope. And we think we understand everything and we question God. And God says, yeah, you got to look at the big picture. You got to look at the whole rope before you'll ever be able to grasp what I'm doing. And does your section of the rope feel unfair and hurtful? Does it feel like your choices sometimes aren't even your own? And you wonder why you're held to account for the ones that you know are? Because that's how God has established life. So it's not about God's plan versus man's choices. It's really about God's plan and man's choices. And we see this reflected once again in the lives of Mary and Judas. How did they respond as they walked in God's plan? Mary, give it all up to you, God. A sacrifice what is of greatest value in order to know you, Jesus, to walk with you, to trust in you. And then there's Judas. I don't understand the plan. I'm going to make my own. I don't get your ways, God. I'm going to try and manipulate things the way I want them to be. Who are we? How are we responding? Now, some of us might go, well, how do I even know I'm saved then? How can I... It, how can I know that I'm genuinely chosen by God? Let me answer that as succinctly as I can. When you consider Mary and Judas, that question, why are you following God in the first place? Are you following God? Are you following Jesus? Because you see him and you love him and you value him. Because he's the only answer to the questions you have in your life. He's the only one who can give you direction and purpose. Or are you following Jesus because of what you think he can do for you? Are you following Jesus for a get out of hell free card? Because I gotta tell you, if, if that's the only reason you think you're a Christian is to get out of hell for free, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. If you're only following Jesus because you, you've been told he'll make your life better, he'll bless you with a new car, he'll fix everything, you're probably not following Jesus for real. So when you sit back and you wonder, am I really, is this real, or am I just being manipulated by God? Are my choices genuine? Am I actually following after Jesus? Why are you following after him in the first place? Philippians 2, 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Philippi. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, ask this question of yourself, why am I following Jesus in the first place? How do you know if you're saved? Why are you following Jesus today? Why do you come to church? Why? Is it just the right thing to do? Or are you passionately chasing after the only one 
who can bring meaning to your life? Why are you following after him in the first place? This is a good thing to ask yourself. This is a good thing to do to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not do good works to earn your salvation, but wrestle with, do I really know Jesus? And not all the time, right? Sometimes we rest in our relationship. But sometimes when we're having a bad week, instead of going, well, God, you stink. Instead, we wrestle with, why am I following? Am I really with Christ? And then as you follow, are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you looking more like Jesus? How can you know that God's plan is for you as an individual to genuinely be saved? Because everyone that God saves, everyone that is genuinely following after Jesus, Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, if you are, according to God's plan, a believer, over the course of your spiritual life, you'll see him working all things together for your good. Now, preachers who like to lie and distort scripture have said that that means your physical comfort or that you'll always be happy or that nothing bad will happen in your life. And that is a lie. That is in direct contradiction to lots of scripture. But what Paul is saying here is that for everyone who has been chosen by God and is genuinely saved, every circumstance in your life, whether positive or negative, will result in one good. And what's that one good? He goes on to explain it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good that God has promised in the life of everyone who is saved is that you will look more like Jesus over the course of time. And that every circumstance, no matter how hard it hurts or how bad it seems, has been ordained and engineered by God to grow you in Christ-likeness. That's the good of Romans 8.28. Not pure bliss or always joyful or no problems, but instead, in the midst of all of it, you will grow in Christ-likeness. So how do you know? How do you know who you are? Answer these two questions. Why do you follow? If you're following after Jesus, Simply to get things, you probably are not genuinely following after Jesus. It's time to start making different choices. It's pray, ask, God, open my eyes, open my heart, help me to follow as I should. And then the second question, do you grow? How do you know you're saved if you're growing? If you've never grown to look more like Jesus over the course of your Christian life, you are not saved. Period. We won't even play games today. And so I want to encourage you to ask these questions as we look and understand that, yes, God is in control. 
God has ordained things. God has a plan and a purpose. How do we know where we stand in his plan? Well, we, we know where we stand in his plan. We know how we've responded. We know if we're genuinely saved because we will be following Jesus wholeheartedly for the right reasons and we will grow to look more like him. These are hard things to wrestle with. Some of you are going to walk away and you're going to like, I don't even know why he talked about that. It was a good nap. Others of you are angry right now because I've, I've brought up things that you disagree with or ideas that you've never really wrestled with, and that's okay. I'm still here after the sermon's over. Come talk to me. Come tell me I'm wrong, and we'll talk about why, scripturally, I think this tension is where we're supposed to live. So I'm not telling you, as we wrap up this morning, that you should be able to just go get a nice nap and be done and, and this will never be an issue in your life again. The nature of God's sovereignty and our choices and how they interact is a place where when you understand them will create tension for the rest of your Christian walk probably. We have this saying in our house when bad things happen, either God's in control or he's not. And he is. Either my choices matter or they don't. And it says, Scripture tells us very clearly, they do. And so, God is in control, and my choices matter, and we have to walk in the tension of that the rest of our lives. As Jesus concludes his time there with his disciples, he gives them a beautiful way to remember who he is and what he's going to do for them. So next week, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper and celebrate what it means to follow Jesus together. So as the worship team comes up and they're going to close us out, I'm sorry, I went a little long. Forgive me. I think Molly was gracious and she's been making those kids sing for an hour. Um, <laughs> hallelujah. And know that, you know, we're, we're still working on, you know, children's ministries, uh, still on an odd schedule. So first three Sundays of the month and, and then the last couple of Sundays, the kids uh, don't really have anything planned, but they're welcome to be in here. And there's always going to be coloring pages when we don't have kids ministry stuff going on. So uh, if you've got questions, if you've got complaints, write them down, talk to me, send me a dirty email. Uh, just don't send it anonymously. Like, let me really know it's you, and we can figure, it, figure things out together. So we've also got here in just a couple of moments the privilege of a baptism. So if you guys want to come up and start getting yourselves ready, um, you can do that as well. So let's pray, and then we'll close with a song together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love for us. We, we don't always understand your plans. We don't understand your sovereignty. We can't wrap, around, uh, can't wrap our mind around the truth that your scripture teaches us that you are in absolute control that you've numbered the hairs on our head that you you have a plan and a purpose for every breath of our life and yet our choices matter that we're not robots we're not automatons we're, we're not just puppets on strings but we are able to make choices that are real and genuine and have consequence and weight and so father help us to walk in the tension of both you in absolute and utter control of every moment and movement and then the truth that our choices matter and so today understanding that our choices have weight and consequence and they matter we pray that you would help us to to walk in a place where we 
value your son Jesus for who he really is. That we worship him as king, that we're willing to sacrifice whatever is most valuable at any moment in order to lift him up and glorify him. We pray that we would not be like Judas, coming to him just for what he can do, coming to him because we like his stuff. But instead, may we genuinely love him. And pray that everyone who knows him as Lord and Savior would continue to grow in Christ-likeness even just a little bit, and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're saved. Know that we're chosen. Know that we're called. When even just a tiny little bit of growth has happened in our life. And so, Father, today we worship you. We submit to you. We know that your plans will come to pass, and they are sure. And we know that our choices matter. And so today, we celebrate your love for us plans and your purposes for each and every one of us. May we glorify you. In the name of Jesus, we pray this
Well, you guys could have a quick seat. Um, it, apparently, Matt and Steve are having trouble getting their um, wetsuits on or something. <laughs> I don't know. They went to go change. I, no doubt. It was a terrible joke. Um, so, hey. Uh, so, any questions, um, comments, complaints? Uh, now, so, it, it is an opportune time to just mention the fact uh, yeah, I mentioned children's ministry and student ministry and all these great Bible studies we've got going on. I just want to uh, let you know we are still working, the, the elders and, and deacons and others will be including as time passes. We're working to establish a Sunday school for everyone of all ages starting probably in September is where we're shooting for now. And so what that means is, is the hour before church starts, we would have classes for every age group. Uh, differing things, so yeah, we've got some some uh, students who will be doing you know just great kids curriculum and student curriculum, and then we'll have some adult classes where we'll be doing some different doctrine, theology, books of the Bible studies, some practical uh, kind of rubber meets the road studies as well. So we're looking to have about three different adult classes, um, and then classes for all ages. And I don't know that I can stretch this out any further. I wondered, yeah, I, I don't know. They just disappeared. Yeah, they went to change, and, you know, it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, so, um, Renee, okay. Uh, no. We want to do that. I think it's just a matter of we're working on trying to when when do we start kicking back up and planning things. So we could uh, talk about outside. I mean, inside we're not. That's not a problem uh, space-wise, really, and spreading out. So, yeah, um, we we actually have talked about it and looking at. We'll definitely start stuff up this fall. We 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 have uh, the elders have said you know we did get stuff going for this fall so we have, I don't know that we've passed on much information to the folks who will be getting stuff going for us. Sorry, the light's bright and so I'm, I can see you, but then I'm like, oh wait, um, I can like shower and change and do my hair in this amount of time. And look at all this hair I've got nowadays. Um, anybody want to make sure they're both alive still? Nobody fell in? <laughs> Did they think the baptism was downstairs in the toilet? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, sometimes the youth minister in me comes out. He was two and a half hours late for your first date? How do you do that? I... I jumped off a curb and passed gas on our first date, but that was that was too much information. I'm sorry, but that's that's and yes, Shelley still chose to marry me, and so you can see choices have consequences. You have got to be careful. You might get stuck with somebody like me for 25 years. There's Matt. Yes, just head back there. Yes, around in the door back there. Uh, any any okay. Steve is supposed to be doing the baptism, so uh, we're waiting for him as well. So otherwise, I'd just jump in and get him on wet. Yes! 
Even so, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> Thank you all for being patient and being a good church family. Uh, right? Is it, I, I've uh, served at churches where everything's really formal and stuffy, and that has its place. But I really appreciate your love for one another and your informality. And I know some folks already had to leave. Please do not hold that against them. Uh, somebody preached a little long anyway. Uh, you guys good? You can come on in. Sorry, the heater, I don't think it works still. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a test. Oh, that's cool. Is there a song, can we just make one of, do you really love Jesus? We'll see I'm if sure you do. The water's real cold. We'll see if you do. Okay. Um, <laughs> forget it. Nobody joined in. I was waiting for that. <laughs> You got, it's just you got to go for it. He passes out. All right. Um, so uh, some of you know Matt Lipinski. Others of you do not. This is Matt Lipinski. He's son of Steve and Marlene. And uh, it is a privilege today to be able to uh, have him make a profession of faith before all of you that he has trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and wishes to follow after him. So let, let me ask those questions, I guess, not make those statements. Matt, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I have. And do you wish from today forward, after this profession of faith, to follow him to the best of your abilities? I do. You understand that this baptism, it's not washing away your sins. It is not, um, you know, making everything fresh and new in, in some sort of magical sense. But it is a starting point in which you are following after Jesus in obedience and celebrating his life, death, and resurrection and how it applies to your life. I do. Excellent. Well, based upon your profession of faith, it is our privilege to allow your father to baptize you. So Steve, Matt, when you guys are ready. It's a little slippery, and it's yeah. cold. <clears throat> Hallelujah. I knew that was going to happen. Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy oh, Spirit right. and raised up to walk in new life in Christ. So congratulations, Matt. We love you. We want to see you succeed in your walk with Christ. Please stick with us as your Christian family, all right? You guys, be that's right. Be sure to congratulate Matt and Steve for being able to do that to his grown son. And um, all right, you guys can climb up out when you're ready, unless you love the cold water. Yeah. God bless you all. Love you guys. Be sure to congratulate Matt and Steve and Marlene uh, as it's just an important and special day for them. And uh, we'll see you throughout the week and then next Sunday as well. God bless.